You're listening to the podcast version of How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. For our August 30th show about the health effects of GMOs, I talked with members of the science community and health community about what might be driving the increase in autoimmune diseases, asthma, and allergies. Now, of course, there was a lot more to talk about than was possible during our broadcast. So here's an extended version of the interviews with experts at the Celiac Research Center, which is at the University of Chicago. It's one of the world's leading research centers about celiac. I spoke with medical director Stefano Guandolini. Thanks for coming. This is Dr. Guandolini. Why did you get interested in this kind of work? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I have the feeling that uh, just things happen and uh, I get chosen by by things and events rather than vice versa. But uh, in reality, I graduated uh, four years ago, as a matter of fact, in uh, in Naples and I began practicing pediatric GI soon after that. And uh, in, in those times, the most common patients were very sick infants and toddlers who presented with chronic uh, or recurrent diarrhea and severe malnutrition. They were really very sick. Uh, Now, in some cases, it was just a matter of poor sanitation at the time, and so we had a lot of uh, infectious causes for this. But also, part of these very sick kids were uh, very young uh, celiac children, and I happened to be specializing in GI in a center where uh, there was already a specific interest in this condition. One of the pioneers in celiac disease, Dr. Auricchio, who is still active, he's retired, but he's still very active, was there and directing the center. So I kind of learned from him, and then my interest grew with time, and then got revamped again big time when I moved to this country 15 years ago, as I noticed that there basically were no celiacs around, and I thought that just wasn't possible since I had a very large population, and uh, uh, this was one of the most common conditions uh, every pediatrician in Italy would think about when seeing a patient with, you know, different problems, but especially with uh, um, failure to thrive or chronic GI problems. So it is very much, and it was then already, very much on the radar of uh, general pediatricians. And here I found out that this was considered a very uh, rare disease, uh, basically a European matter that were, you know, was not of interest. So, so that kind of uh, revamped my interest. So in 96, 1996, most pediatricians, most doctors did not think celiac was a common disease in the United States. And even after that, uh, I often quote uh, classical textbook of pediatric, uh, general pediatrics, which is the Nelson textbook of pediatrics, has been there as uh, the, you know, the Holy Bible for pediatricians. And in the edition of 99, so that is a, a whole three years after I moved to this country, in the edition of 99, they still quote celiac disease as a rare occurrence in one in 10,000. And they say also that the prevalence is diminishing. Uh, so basically, the, the, the current thinking, even of, the, you know, the, the uh, educated, advanced, uh, pediatricians at the time was that in this country this was a rare and common disease decreasing in prevalence, while exactly the opposite was happening. Your sense in the United States is that at first there was just a lack of awareness about this disease, celiac disease. There was a lot of catching up to do about making people aware that at least one in 100 people are affected by celiac. 
That's correct. At the time, the, the current prevalence we, we understood from European study was 1 in 250. This was the number everybody quoted. But there were already um, studies showing that the prevalence might have actually been higher. Uh, in any case, uh, either even 1 in 250, as you understand, is like, what, 40 times more prevalent than the 1 in 10,000 that everybody was thinking. Once people became more aware of what the incidence was, then there was also this other strange change where people became more aware that it occurs more frequently than it used to. And this is not just diagnosis happening more often because people are more aware. This disease is more common today. Yes, that's uh, certainly true. So both statements are true. On one side, there is definitely in these past few years especially uh, a much increased awareness uh, we do have better diagnostic tools. They certainly are employed now more often than they were 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but in addition to that, there is certainly an increase in true prevalence of this condition, which is not unique for celiac disease. It happens for other autoimmune conditions as well as allergic conditions. Allergies, autoimmune conditions such as type 1 diabetes, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and celiac are all on the rise. That is correct. As for celiac disease, uh, from various parts of the world, the current estimate is that in about 20 years, the prevalence uh, doubles. So every 20 years, it doubles, which is, of course, uh, concerning. Is that also the case for autism? As another one we could toss in here where it's mysterious that the rate of this condition is, is increasing. I'm not an expert of autism. I'm not a neurodevelopmental pediatrician. I'm a simple uh, pediatric GI guy. You say that allergies, type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, celiac are all on the increase. There are a lot of possible smoking guns for why. Yes, there are, you know, you can uh, fish in different hypotheses, uh, more or less based on, uh, on evidence. Um, and this is one of the actually most interesting and fascinating aspects of modern medicine to try and understand why this is the case. And if once we identify the cause, then you, you know, hopefully intervene and, and change this direction. My understanding is that the most accepted theory, which really has some rather strong uh, base in epidemiological observations, is the so-called hygiene hypothesis. Stated briefly, we have witnessed in the 60s, the 70s, and subsequently a progressive marked decline in infectious diseases. Because we live in a much cleaner society and because we use vaccines, fortunately, the rates of infectious disease and the rates of diffusion of bacteria and other microorganisms has greatly decreased. And as a result, especially during the important time window of the first uh, 18 months of life or so. As a result, our gut immune system has not been exposed to the load of antigens uh, coming from the environment that were expected by Mother Nature to be there. And uh, in experimental animals, if you uh, reduce substantially the exposure of antigens uh, to the developing gut, as a result, you have serious complications in terms of the animal immune system never actually developing so well and functioning well. 
and the, the response to subsequent stimuli is then skewed toward reactions which are either on the allergic or on the autoimmune type. The theory is that we've made our world so clean and so free of things for our bodies to fight that our bodies have trouble figuring out who's the friend and who's the foe. That's more or less the case, yes. For allergies, for instance, this was known for a long time that children that grow up in rural areas, the old rural areas, those where the animals were actually part of the environment and not confined in factories, the children who were grown in, in real rural conditions had a much, much, much lower incidence of asthma, of allergic disorders, etc. And, and this is just one I could go on with a list of observations supporting this concept. You know, there's two questions I have about that. One is that there's a lot of ways to make things dirtier again. We don't necessarily want kids to go out and play in the dirt. No, of course, of course, because it's, it's very fortunate that we got rid of not so many infectious conditions. There's no question about that. The infant mortality has declined to an all-time low in the last decade or so worldwide, but especially, of course, in developed countries. So clearly we don't want to pay the price of going back to a to a non-hygienic society, you're right. And, and yet, at the same time, there have been some fascinating stories about ways to introduce something right. that helps make the uh, body see friend or foe differently. Um, one example is roundworms. Yes. There are also cleaner examples uh, like probiotics. Uh, I wouldn't go all the way to, the, to worms. But you're right. I mean, uh, that, that has been tried also, yes. And roundworms have some reputation for if somebody gets themselves a small dose of a parasitic roundworm infection in their gut, then it is something that occasionally can clear out allergies. Yes, there are some anecdotal uh, observations on that, uh, also in the medical literature, and there are even promising results with uh, worms uh, and, and other and specific form, forms of parasitic uh, organisms in uh, conditions such as inflammatory bowel disease. So you're saying that something that is true. However, I want to say the science in this regard is not much advanced yet. So although this looks promising, we still have a long way to go before coming out with the can of worms that would prevent or treat allergies. I want to be clear on that. Well, and then there's Helicobacter pylori, which is showing some indication that an animal that has uh, H. pylori in their, in their stomach is less likely to be hit hard with a salmonella infection. I'm actually, honestly, not aware of this uh, uh, relationship, but uh, you also understand that H. pylori is the cause of gastric cancer, so you might rather have a salmonella infection than, than gastric cancer. So, as you can see, uh, there are always two sides to every story. And all of these are puzzling. Pylori, is, it's my understanding, is in a huge amount of the population worldwide. Most of those people don't get ulcers, and most of them don't get cancer. Absolutely true. So most people are not affected by those two side effects of having that organism in their stomachs. What's different about the people where that does cause them to be sick? No one knows yet. No one knows yet. You're, you're absolutely right. It is true that the vast majority of those affected by H. pylori do not develop ulcers and certainly do not develop cancer. It is also true, however, that the only recognized cause of gastric cancer worldwide is H. pylori. And it is also recognized that H. pylori is the most common cause of gastric endodenal ulcers. So 
again, you know, I'm not saying everybody should or should not take H. pylori. Let Mother Nature run its course. It's not like one puzzle piece solves it all here. There are mysteries all the way through. And so now I'm going to ask you about some other possible culprits, because with the prediction that celiac incidence is going to double every 20 years, that's going to be a lot of people with this, in, with this problem. What are some other things that have increased in our world? Well, sugar consumption has increased at about that rate in the United States. What do you think? One of the major risks in epidemiology is to make the connection between two phenomena that are occurring at the same time and going in the same direction, yet do not have any causal relationship. And I could make a million examples of this. For instance, the use of automobiles has also increased enormously since the early 1900s until now. And this was the same time in which the death by, um, what should I say, infectious diseases have declined. So are you saying that by driving an automobile you decrease your risk of infectious disease? Nobody would say such a thing. So then why do we say instead that the higher consumption of sugar is causing the increase in autoimmune conditions. You know, the fact that two phenomena follow the similar curve uh, does not allow us to draw conclusions that they are linked as a cause-effect relationship. could be that all of those cars that have been driven have had some effect on our immune systems because of what they spew out into the air. We don't know what the pesticides have done. Sure. You're absolutely right. There is, there is, there is a huge world of, uh, of uncertainties. Increasing prevalence in the world of GMOs, is that having an effect on our uh, immune systems? No, I don't think there, there have been studies on this, and it would be very hard to conduct because um, the use of uh, uh, modi- or genetically modified organisms is so widespread, and we, use, we eat them all the time. When, when you go on the supermarket and buy tomatoes, in this country especially, you have easily a genetically modified organism in your body, um, so that it is only one of the many variables. So to conduct a study and try a certain this relationship would be very hard to design and, and, and to prove. That said, I don't think there is anyone that has looked into this. In Europe, as you probably know, there is much more public uh, hostility toward against the use of um, uh, genetically modified organisms, yet they are seeing the same increase in, uh, in the prevalence of autoimmune conditions. So if I had to judge from this comparison, I would say probably they have no role in this. But this is, again, a very um, long shot. I mean, clearly there, there is no um, information and no studies, either prospective or retrospective, on this relationship. How about the change in modern growing and processing techniques? Has there been a shift in the kind of proteins that wheat is grown for or the amount of gluten that's in wheat that might have changed its digestibility? Yes, but you need to understand these changes were not, the the major changes in this did occur about 10,000 to 5,000 years ago during the time in which uh, men began to understand that some species of uh, wheat the ancient wheat were not so good in yielding good crops, and then they realized that by uh, crossing them, by picking up those who were better, they finally, over the millennia actually, ended up by identifying the kind of wheat that we're using today, which is a tetraploid wheat, meaning that four times the genetic content of everything, including gluten, that there was in the original grains. 
So the major change in the protein content of cereals actually occurred by our ancestors. It's not the result of modern technology. I think it's easy to blame everything on modern technology. I'm not aware of any major change in the protein content or composition in cereals occurring as a result of technology. I'm fully aware of major changes occurring as a result of ancient agricultural uh, innovations. We have changed the processing techniques. We have changed to eating a lot more fast food and foods that are processed in ways that are not the ways that our ancestors would have made. You're less inclined to say that it might be the acrylamides in a flaked cereal that would lead to problems or, you know, that kind of processing where something is, uh, the browning effect changes the protein structure of the grains that we eat. I, I, I have to be honest with you. I don't know enough about this. Uh, I have read a couple of conferences on similar topics and we're not really convincing or proving their point one way or another. So uh, I am still, uh, I think the jury is still out uh, on, on this, to be honest with you. I certainly am not um, enough erudite, if you wish, on this topic to give you a, a clean scientific answer. So, But I do think that uh, the jury is still out. I don't think there has been any convincing evidence one way or another. So I hear you saying that there are a lot of possible smoking guns, but there really haven't been enough studies of sugar consumption, of meat consumption, of changes in how we process the grains that we eat, of pesticides and environment to know whether those might be affecting the increase of these autoimmune conditions and celiac. But we do know that in places which are a little bit dirtier than others, then there tends to be less celiac. But that's why people are thinking that conceivably the use of well-chosen, uh, well-identified probiotics, that is the microorganisms that are beneficial to the host uh, with which we have uh, lived together for millions of years, uh, might be beneficial in the early stages of human development in order to re-establish that kind of natural antigenic load to the intestine that would would lead our gut immune system to develop in a proper way, thereby preventing the occurrence of autoimmune and allergic disorders. I think this is actually an area where my money would be for the future. And you mean probiotics such as yogurt or the fact that if an infant is nursing then the infant is also taking in some of the natural bacteria and microbes that are part of the mother's skin. It goes well beyond the yogurt and, and also breastfeeding. Breastfeeding would cause two things to, that are positive to, to the infant. On one side, it would actually, as you said, provide directly bacteria. There are some species of bifidobacteria that are present and alive in breast milk given to the infant. In addition, the composition of breast milk is such that it would stimulate the growth and the proliferation in the infant's gut of the beneficial bacteria. So there are these two things. Um, but it goes beyond that. Even the, the, the way you're born uh, plays a role. C-section babies do not have the same um, uh, composition of microbiota that have those who are born vaginally because they acquire their, their bacteria during the birth process. And these differences may have a long uh, impact on children. Some yogurts contain uh, bacteria that have been proven as uh, effective probiotics in several systems. 
the majority of the yogurts that are commonly sold, however, do not contain those bacteria. The bacteria needed to produce yogurt are only two, Streptococcus thermophilus and Lactobacillus bulgaricus, and neither of them really is a very good probiotic. So you need to add specific bacteria that have been shown to be able to resist uh, gastric digestion, going through the intestine and remain alive until they actually reach the point where they should begin working. And there are some of these bacteria. Now, the science is really making large progress and very quickly in this area. So there is now a list of uh, reliable bacteria, and there are people working at creating even more. The whole human microbiome project. That's correct. It's a major enterprise because the genes uh, that are contained in our microbiome are like a million times uh, more numerous than the genes of the human. So it's much more complex. Now, you've done studies where you've looked at what happens to somebody who has celiac, where their nice little fingery things in their digestive tract and the duodenum get rubbed away by the disease. And you found that if people take probiotics after they've stopped taking in glutens, then those probiotics can help the gut heal more quickly than if they don't take probiotics. We actually have not found that yet, but this is one of our lines of research. Uh, and uh, yes, we are, we are about to begin investigating the, this possibility, which is, in our view, it's a very realistic possibility, yes. That's a line that you're looking at, a way to provide something that's just a little bit dirty, but pretty darn healthy to add in. Um, I, was, I was intrigued reading through your materials that once somebody is a celiac sufferer, as far as you all can tell, it's a little bit like somebody who's allergic to bees. It takes just a tiny amount of gluten for them to start damaging themselves again. Even if they're not getting symptoms, they can be damaging themselves with a very tiny amount of gluten. That's correct. As low as 100 milligrams, and a milligram, as you know, is one thousandth of a gram of gluten uh, are enough to cause detectable damage in all uh, individuals who have celiac disease. Um, below that level, uh, in some cases, there are no damage. In some other cases, individuals are more sensitive, there are still damage. And below the level of, uh, let's say, 10 milligram, uh, nobody is damaged by, by gluten. So, but even 100 milligram, it's, it's a very, very, very small amount. Is that like a half a teaspoon? No, it's much less than that. We estimate to be one sixty-fourth of a teaspoon. All right, so that's just like three grains of salt. Oh, yes. People won't notice that they have symptoms of damaging themselves. It, it depends. It depends. There are those who are very sensitive. They start throwing up, feeling bad, heavy, crampy pain within half an hour of ingesting that small amount. And there are those who are the majority who actually feel nothing. And even though they feel nothing, they're being damaged. Well, yes, yes. There is a damage. It is a, an activation of an inflammatory process. Now, the extent and the consequences of this reactivation uh, really depend on how frequently uh, we are exposed to gluten. So, in other words, if this is a daily exposure uh, above 100 milligram, most certainly you have all the damage that celiac disease can cause. But if it is an occurrence, like I say, once, and then after seven months, and then after five months, then I don't think uh, we, we need to regard this as, uh, you know, being eating gluten normally. Uh, so it, the damage is not uh, permanent. That's what I'm trying to say, if the exposures are very limited and occasional. How about if someone works very hard to be gluten-free all week long, and then they go to a restaurant 
and in the sauce for their chicken, there's a gravy that has a little bit of gluten in it. And it's only once a week that they go out to a restaurant. Is that okay? Once a week is like eating gluten every day. It's just the same. Once a week is, is not acceptable. Many, many studies have shown that your antibodies are raised in the blood if you um, eat gluten above that threshold once a week. So that's really too much. Okay, how about once every two weeks out to the restaurant then? <laughs> you know, it, it really depends on the individual. So uh, define the border between what is safe and how frequently is unsafe. Uh, for everybody is just not possible because every individual is different. And that's why we try to say the so-called zero tolerance, knowing perfectly well that uh, nobody is able to have zero gluten in their diet. A little bit, a tiny amount now and then is uh, almost unavoidable. So you need to exert our... Um... And what you're describing is, is very intriguing because it's not the gluten itself that is really the big damage causer, because that clears out of the system fairly quickly. It's the body's response, creating antibodies, looking out for gluten in the bloodstream, but they also get confused and attack the microvilli, and it takes a way long time for the antibodies to clear out of the body. The antibodies actually are not that important. The antibodies are important for us to detect the condition when they spill in the blood, but locally, these antibodies are really of almost no consequence is T-cells that are armed with the capacity of killing the lining of the gut that actually cause the damage, and they are not related to the antibodies. So the antibodies are useful to us as a marker of the disease, but they are not really causing the damage. It's also hard to detect. That's the other hard thing, is that if somebody stayed away from grains for a long time because they, it ne they never made them feel good, then they might never test positive for celiac. Yes, uh, the, this is the nature of the beast here. We can, the, the, the best test that we currently have to detect celiac is the autoantibody test in the blood. It is a very safe and excellent test. It's one of the best tests in medicine, uh, as a matter of fact. But, as you say, relies on the ingestion of gluten. Uh, now, to clear your body from the antibodies once you begin a gluten-free diet, it takes a variable time dependent on, on the individual, dependent on how raised they were to begin with, but certainly after a minimum of three months, you may already have cleared uh, all your antibodies. I would say anything between three and 12 months are necessary to clean completely your antibodies from your system. And that's why you're trying to make a vaccine? Well, uh, the vaccine actually is more ambitious than that. The vaccine is supposed to uh, eventually provide us with a cure for celiac so that we have an individual that has been diagnosed with celiac and yet can be uh, treated in such a way that the immune system is influenced to recognize gluten as something that they don't have to react to, like milk or eggs or meat. So proteins uh, that are not our cells, but yet do not require an aggression. So that's the, the, the theory with the vaccine. It's ironic, though, isn't it, that more vaccines in the world, a cleaner world, may be what led the world to be too clean to confuse the immune system. It's an irony, yes. I, I, I concur with that, yes. Yes. Well, good luck with your work. Well, thank you so much. That was Medical Director Stefano Guandolini of the Celiac Research Center, which is at the University of Chicago. 
You can hear more How on Earth interviews and episodes of the show by subscribing to our podcast through iTunes or by visiting our website at howonearthradio.org. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.